0: Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or, we'll see you some Sunday. Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. John chapter 10, verse 18. We're in a series on Colossians, so we're going to start, of course, with the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to face death. And I think some of his followers are starting to feel like, wait, this is, I'm a little unsure here of what's going on because you're supposed to be our leader, we're creating a new kingdom, and you're talking about how you're going to end up in Jerusalem and die. And that doesn't feel very leader-like. That doesn't feel like you've got everything under control. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Nobody's doing this to me. I am voluntarily choosing to lay my life down. Now I want us to have that idea in mind because it's incredibly important for the topic that we're going to talk about today. What we're talking about today is things that we as followers of Jesus willingly choose to do. No one takes these things from us, but we willingly lay our lives down. When I was 23 years old, I was hired at my first ministry job in Centerville, Iowa. It is not the center of anything. It's about 5,000 people in the town, little church. But when you're 23 years old, you, I apologize to all the 23-year-olds in the room, you don't know a lot about leading a church. You don't know a lot. In every church, you've got to have a few people that you look to that give you a lot of encouragement, a lot of advice, a lot of feedback. In this small church in Centerville, Iowa, there was a gentleman by the name of Harold Fowler. Uh, He was in his mid-70s at the time, and uh, I just thought he must have been a Christian for the last hundred or so years because he's just so enthusiastic, so on fire, so interested. He was just so encouraging. We would have guest speakers, and I would be introducing them to Harold, and Harold would look at me, and he'd be like, you're not preaching today? And I'd be like, no, we're having, you know, Billy, my friend here, is preaching, and Harold would be like, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Like, that is so funny. Billy still talks about that. This is my first (laughs) ministry position. Uh, and Harold was just the guy that everybody needed. Anyway, I just assumed he must have been Christian from the very beginning of time, and that wasn't the case. He had only been a Christian for a few years uh, before I had arrived in Centerville. And his wife had been part of the church for years, and had constantly, will you come to church, will you come to church, will you come to church? And if if he was being honest, he would have said that he was a pretty angry guy, uh, struggled with alcoholism, and he was, maybe not, Atheist, but he was certainly agnostic, apathetic, for sure, to the whole idea. And then his wife passed away. And the church hosted the funeral. And the minister officiated the funeral. And he started to dip his toe into what it was like to be around people whose lives were re-energized and transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he kind of, you know, tested the shallow end. And then he jumped headfirst in the deep end. And that was the remainder of his life. He became a source of light in that community because he was transformed. And I think that's one of the things that we have to understand is that that the way Jesus revolutionized the world was never coercion and force and from the outside in it was always through these transformed hearts that begin to ripple out and once the heart is actually transformed then everything begins to change your your marriage changes your parenting changes your work environment changes everything ripples out but sometimes we want to force the outside and make that better without having this transformation inside and it just doesn't work that way it never has. It's never been the way Jesus is. His revolution is from the inside out, and it's not by force. You have to lay your life down voluntarily. No one takes it from us, but we lay it down in our own accord. We're working through the book of Colossians, and we are in a tough passage. The passage we're reading today has been misused, and it's been abused, and people have been hurt and marginalized by this passage. By the words we're going to read today, people have been mistreated because of the things that we're going to read. Not because of what they mean, but because of how they used them. It would be easy just to say, you know what, let's skip something more palatable. Let's talk about something that everybody can be on board with. Let's just get, you know, let's do something we can all agree with. Uh, And it would be tempting to skip because men have mistreated and abused women based on these passages, And so it's really important that we understand for some of us, this is kind of an academic exercise into understanding a little bit of God's word and theology. For some people, it brings out real hurt and harm that they have experienced. And that's why it's so valuable that we think clearly and carefully. And some of you are like, well, maybe we should just ignore these passages if they're so devastating and so harmful, maybe we should ignore them. But I've been thinking a lot about this. I think we have to stop conceding passages of Scripture to misunderstanding and just stop letting people do what they want. Rather, we should reclaim what God intended for those, for those words to mean and the way he intended those words to shape the community to which Paul was writing. Have you ever, uh, have you ever been in a conversation where someone was mispronouncing a word or using the wrong word? You know what I'm talking about? I was having this conversation with this guy, and he was using the wrong word. Not only was it the wrong word, but it was an impolite word, and he didn't know it. At first, I thought I was being punked, like, is there new cameras or something like that? And he just kept saying this word over and over again. Every time he would, I'd be like, I don't think that means what you think it means. You know, I'm thinking of the Princess Bride. And he just kept saying it over and over, and I'm like having this internal wrestling match. Do I say something? Do I tell him, like, hey, that's, you shouldn't say that in public. And ultimately, you know what I did? I whimped out, right? But what I didn't do was begin to use the word as he was using it in the context just so he would feel better. I didn't concede, I just kind of played it safe and just didn't talk about it. I think passages we're reading today work like that, where we could just ignore them, we could just set them aside, we could just say, you know what, that's a tough one, let's not really talk about it. But this is part of the word of God, and this is the value of going through scripture uh, verse by verse and and section by section like we've been doing in this series, is because you're forced to to deal with difficult passages. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to explore this passage from scratch. If that's possible. If we can, now I know you, you're like, I haven't even read the passage. What passage are we reading? But if it's possible to turn the, uh, the emotional dial down and just start from scratch and say, if we were to just start from the beginning, not from all the misunderstanding, not from all the hurt, not from all the abuse, if we were just to start from the beginning and try to explore God's word and what it meant, where, where would we get? And that's what we're going to try to do. So, ready? All right. Turn the page, here we go. Highlights Magazine, when you're in the dentist's office as a kid, is the best thing. You know what I'm talking, do you know Highlights Magazine? What I loved about it is it was was just full of puzzles and jokes, they're goofus and gallant, and goofus always did the wrong thing, and gallant, of course, always did the right thing. Does anybody remember these? Am I just the only one? Okay, I thought it was great. Before I graduated to Mad Magazine, this is what I fed my mind with, and on the back cover of every single one of the magazines, there was this picture, and then the phrase, what's wrong? And of course, in this picture, there's lots of things wrong, right? You know, oh, shortstop is riding an elephant, and a horse is playing third base, and it's just, you know, it's fun, and you'll circle all the things, like, what's wrong with this picture? Well, I want us to do that, but I want us to suggest or think, what is wrong to our modern 21st century American minds, what's wrong with this verse, Okay. What's wrong with this verse? Imagine you're on the back page of a Highlights magazine. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. What are our modern objections to these verses? Everybody in the room knows our modern objections to these verses are wives submit. We do not like that at all. In fact, in preparing for this message, I talked to several people about what was coming, and they said that, oh, my wife made me take those words out of our marriage vows, or they said I was the wife and I took those words out. I wasn't having those words. I get it. We have an objection to that, and I totally totally understand that it makes sense and we would also object to the very existence of of masters and slaves without Paul saying now of course we know that that's all sinful and evil he doesn't say that in this passage however Beth Allison Barr points out that if this passage were to be read to a first century audience they would have a different objection it wouldn't be the same as our objection their objection in the first century would look like husband's love wait no I am the husband. I don't have to do anything. I, everybody does things for me. Like, Paul, you don't understand who you're talking to. I am the head of the household. I am the one in charge. So what's wrong with these verses? When we read difficult passages, we tend to have one of three knee-jerk reactions to it. And I'm not saying that the, the thought as a whole is wrong, but it's not well-developed. But these are the ways when we're reading through, if you're just doing your morning reading and you come to passages like this, the way that your mind starts going as you try to figure out what was Paul getting at here is you do you tend to do one of three things, or at least most people do. The first thing some people do is they think, oh, you know what, those, those people back in the day, they were just unenlightened. They just didn't get it. They didn't understand how the world was supposed to work, and they were just ignorant. It's kind of like when you see an old advertisement for three out of four doctors recommend this brand of cigarettes, and you're like, okay, yeah, back in the day, they didn't get it. They're just unenlightened. But the problem is, is how do you sort the good from the bad, because there's so much truth that resonates with our hearts and our lives. And we have experienced transformation through the words and comfort through the words that we read in scripture. So how do we decide what's enlightened and what's not? In fact, if we are in charge of deciding that, aren't we in danger of shaping scripture rather than being shaped by it? It's a struggle. So I don't know that we could just say, oh, they were unenlightened. Another thing that people tend to do when they're reading passages like this is they say, well, that was just cultural. That was just the way that they were, and we're different, and we're implied better. And that's true. It is a very different culture. And Paul is speaking to a different culture. That is absolutely true. But this cuts both ways. Because if we're like, let's dismiss the uh, wives submit because that's cultural, then what do we do with the husband's love? We don't want to dismiss that. That's important, or children obey. So how do we choose that those things are eternal and then these things are cultural? That's really tough, it cuts both ways. And so there's some truth to the cultural piece, but it's not enough just to dismiss it or or, or to just decide. Because again, we are the ones editing and shaping Scripture rather than being shaped by it. And then the third thing people do, and I think this is probably the worst of the options, but a lot of people choose this one, is they just say, well, the Bible's just harmful. The Bible's just harmful, it's wrong. Paul was wrong. But the problem is, is you lose so much with that thinking. You lose so much. I feel like most weddings I've been to quote the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is in the definition of love. And if you just say, well, the Bible's harmful, well, then there's so much that we lose. And so the question is, what do we do? And by the way, this is really important for me to say. When we look at verses like this and say, well, the Bible is unjust, and therefore should be disregarded. We are judging the Bible with definitions of justice that we derived from the Bible. We are condemning the Bible by hearts and minds and lives and cultures that were shaped by the Bible. So I don't know that that's a fair answer either. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Let's pause, and let's come back at this passage in a way I think that's helpful and uh, true. Most of the world operates in what we call an honor shame culture Have you guys heard this term before honor shame culture most of the world operates this way an honor shame culture let me just give you a small example whether or not this is helpful in an honor shame culture if I were today say uh, hey I would love you and your family to come over for dinner on Friday if you knew oh I have a conflict on Friday and our family can't make it if you knew that you would not say that. Instead, in an honor-shame culture, most of them, you would say, thank you so much for that wonderful invitation, we accept, and we will see you on Friday. And then, later, you find some uh, polite excuse for why you can't make it. But you never deny the invitation. Now, to modern Western Americans, that seems backward. No, you need to be honest and direct. But to honor shame cultures, you are honoring the person inviting you by accepting the invitation. That, and it would be rude to ignore the invitation. My parents ran into this when they were missionaries in Taiwan and they would ask somebody for directions. If the person they asked did not know how to get where they were going, the person would just say, well, go down here, turn left, turn right, go upside down, then zigzag, and then you'll be there. Because in an honor-shame culture, you couldn't say, I don't know, because it could be perceived as I don't want to help you. As Americans, were like, well, that's wrong and backwards. I'm telling you, America is the country that is out of sync with everybody else. At MIT. They have this program for bringing international students in every year. And One of the things that they do is they talk about American culture and friendship. And I think it's incredibly fascinating to hear about our culture from another perspective. And let me read you some of the things that are taught. So here's some quotes for this class. In America, dress is often very casual. Do not be surprised to see students attending classes or even doing their shopping in sweatpants. It's shock listen to this, this is different. In America, a stranger of the opposite sex may make eye contact. They may even smile at you and say hello. This does not mean that you are friends or that they are romantically interested in you. Can you imagine coming over to America and you're like, wow, I must have it. Everybody's, everybody wants to date me. Independence is a very strong cultural value in the U.S., Young people look forward to moving out of their parents' home so that they can be independent from them. And this is what I think is funny. And parents generally want them to do so. (laughs) (laughs) Different than in an honor-shame culture, where you have generations of parents. And then the final one. They said, you may have heard that everything in the United States is bigger. Sometimes needlessly so. Amen. Some supermarkets are more like airplane hangars than grocery stores. You may walk into a Walmart and think you've seen it all, but then you'll find a Costco and no one's ready for a Costco. (laughs) That that was pretty good. So in an honor-shame culture, as most of the world is, concepts that we're constantly reinforcing and emphasizing, like be yourself and you do you and go against the flow, those would sound ridiculous, In those systems. Now the hard part about this is all countries are a mixture of all kinds of different things. And there's even honor-shame in our society, right? When your kid does something that's embarrassing, you're feeling a sense of shame. But you probably don't correct them by saying, you have besmirched the family name. That's not, you're just like, I feel a little embarrassed because people are going to judge my parenting. So we do have a little bit of this, but not to the degree that other cultures. I say all that to say the Bible was written in and to an honor-shame culture. And there is so much in scripture that just does not get into our brains because we're not reading it that way. We don't don't understand it that way. Let me give you just a couple quick examples. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Well, we call that idea disfellowshipping. We don't really practice it much in modern America because as soon as there's like a disagreement, most people would just be like, well, I'm out, I'm gonna go do a different church. It just wouldn't work. People wouldn't feel ashamed. But in the Bible, this was a big deal. To be excluded from the community was a big deal. For some of you, that would be a relief. You don't have to accept anybody's invitations to dinner anymore and you get to stay home in your sweatpants and watch Netflix all day. But in honor-shame culture, not so. You were being cast out by society. Uh, how about Romans 3:23? is the familiar passage for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, I don't know that we think of sin as falling short of God's honor or dishonoring God or not bringing honor to God. We don't think of sin as that. We think of sin as a bad thing and we probably shouldn't do it, but we don't think of it as if it brings shame to God. We think of sin maybe, depending on what culture says, we think of sin as bringing shame to us. And so our solution to sin is try to redefine sin in our culture so that the thing that we want to do is no longer sin. But it's not about bringing honor or praise or glory to God. It's just about avoiding shame to us. So this idea, this honor-shame idea is all over the Bible. Which is why when Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, by the way, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew, there's no circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. When it says that, that's a big deal. That's a huge statement. Paul's trying to help guide a group of people of what it looks like to no longer consider one another by these categories, but still exist in a world that is shaped by these categories. That is what Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. So how does a transformed person navigate an untransformed world? How does that happen? So let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3, 17. He writes, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name, again, honor, glory, for the purpose of bringing honor to the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the verse right before what we're about to read. Bring honor to the name of Jesus. Now, let's read this text. Wives, submit to your husbands. Remember, we're talking about bringing honor to Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, again, how do we bring honor to the name of Christ in a society that doesn't understand how we have been recreated and renewed into the image of Christ that all people have? I got to tell you, all week, I have felt a little bit like Evil Knievel preparing to jump the Grand Canyon, knowing that half the crowd was there just to watch him fall to his demise, <laughs> And I've been like, oh, there's going to be people in the room that are just right from the very beginning like, okay, how is this going to go bad? This is, how is this going to all fall apart? So I just tell you that I know there's probably some people in the room who are, who are uh, interacting with this sermon a little differently. Um, they just want to see a train wreck. <laughs> Each topic in this passage that we just read is grouped by couplets, like a poem. You have wives and husbands, you have kids, you have parents, you have slaves and masters. And Paul has something to say to each group. And you cannot separate them. To understand what Paul's getting at in isolation is to misunderstand what Paul's getting at. So let's talk about wives and husbands. Let's talk about wives and husbands. You're going to be shocked to learn that ancient Rome was all about the guys, It was a whole culture that everything existed for the benefit of the dudes. So you've probably heard the term paterfamilias. It meant that the head of the household, and this was usually grandpa, not just dad, but grandpa, because multiple generations existed or lived together, was the guy. And it wasn't just like, oh, there was this idea, good old boys club, and that's just the way the culture worked. No, the paterfamilias had legal Autocratic authority in the family. This is true. It didn't happen or rarely happened, but the father had the right to execute anybody in his family at any time for any reason. Now, it would have been frowned on by culture and it didn't happen, but they had that legal authority. They could do that. They had, there was no one higher than, uh, than the Potter Families than, than, than the government. They could, they could sell their kids into slavery. Even adult kids, they could sell into slavery if money got a little tight. Divorce, I mean, everything was in the husband's name. There was just, it it was just all about the guys. Now, this is crucial. The guys didn't do anything to earn that sort of authority. They didn't have to go through any classes. They didn't have to get licensed. They didn't have to go to school and get a PhD. There was nothing. They had that sort of position in society by virtue of being born a guy and having children. That's it. That's all they did. That's all they had going for them. They didn't earn this authority. It was just given them. So when we think or see the word husband or think about the concept of husband, we're thinking about something very different than what Paul is writing about. We're thinking about the guy, and I know there's some stereotypes here, so forgive me, but we're thinking about the guy who tries to take the lid off the jar. or We're thinking about the guy who mows the lawn. or We're thinking about the guy who, in a lot of cultures, even in the U.S., is the, the primary breadwinner. We're think, we have a different concept than what Paul is writing about. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, and I know, again, there's stereotypes because every different household works and operates differently, but we've got baggage, we've got stereotypes, but we think of the guy in a marriage. We just think of the guy. When Paul says husbands, he's acknowledging this whole world that we don't have, that we don't operate in. He's acknowledging, men, you have been given benefits in this society, and it would be a misuse of those benefits to mistreat your wives, or to use those benefits yourselves, So understand what Paul is saying is pretty revolutionary here. When he says, husbands, love your wives, he's saying, husbands, take all that stuff that society has just handed you on a platter and you honor and love and protect and cherish your wives with all of that. That is your goal. That is your purpose. Once you have accepted that responsibility, that's what you do. You take that, all that, that you didn't earn, that you've just been given... And you use it to honor your wife. And a misuse of those benefits would be to honor yourself. That would be a misuse is what Paul is saying. Do you see how what he's saying is pretty radical in the first century? It's a pretty big deal. To say, like, you like to think you're the little dictator in the home and everybody's there to serve you. But he's saying it's exactly the opposite. You have been given status. You have been given authority. You have been given power that you did not earn. Use it to love your wife. So this verse would read something like husbands in order to honor the name of Jesus take your unearned power your unearned status and use it to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right? Okay, so guys, what has been given you? What has society blessed you with? What what unique position, status, authority do you have that you can take and not serve yourself with it, but serve your spouse? What do you have? And maybe there are stereotypical things. Maybe it is your career. Maybe it is your work ethic. Maybe it is your authority or your strength or your expertise. But it would be a mistake. It would be a mistake to use your career to serve yourself to the neglect of your wife. That's what Paul is saying. It would be a mistake to use whatever uh, authority you have to serve yourself to the neglect of your wife. That's what Paul is getting at. And husbands, no one takes our lives. We lay it down Willingly. A good diagnostic tool, husbands, if you're thinking, okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does it mean to love my wife? Just First Corinthians thirteen. Love is patient kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, it does not dishonor, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. Husbands, this is what this is the standard the scripture holds you to. That's why we have to understand. No one takes our lives, but we lay it down willingly. All right. Now some of you are like, okay, Patrick, that's easy. You're a husband. Speaking to husbands, we can tell husbands they need to love their wives. But what about these other words? What about <laughs> wives submit? <laughs> and this is the evil, can crashing into the Grand Canyon part. By the way, he never jumped over the Grand Canyon. He broke a lot of bones, though. It's so important to note what this verse does not say. Okay? It's it's so valuable. And if we, m- this is where the misuse and the misunderstanding and the abuses has happened. And and maybe they would never say it says this, but this is the way people have been treating it. It does not say, all women submit to all men. I heard some amends from women. Guys are like, I don't, I don't know. It does not say, husbands, command your wives to submit. It does not say, wives, subject yourself to abuse. And there's no definition of this word that means subjugation, servitude, or second place, Okay? That's what it does not mean. What does it mean? No one takes our lives. We lay it down willingly. I heard a story, and I'm certain it's apocryphal. I'm, I'm nearly certain it didn't happen, although who knows, maybe. And it was a husband and wife who had been married 75 years. And somebody was interviewing them for, you know, this little happy article in the newspaper, and they said, you know, tell us what it's been like. And the husband and wife said, we have never argued one time not once in 75 years and the interviewer is like that's that's amazing that's amazing what's what's your secret and the wife says well <clears throat> every time I was upset or annoyed or angry with him I, I just went and cleaned the bathroom and the interviewer was confused what does that have to do with having a good marriage <laughs> She kind of cracked a smile, looked at the interviewer, and she says, I used his toothbrush to do it. (laughs) Now, I know that's probably not a true story, but it's this opportunity when things aren't going your way just to do something that's maybe a little undermining, a little subversive. When we see the word wife, we think of the bride, the little figures on top of the cake. We think of the one in the wedding dress. And of course, there's stereotypes that are good and bad. There's baggage, but we think of the bride in the party. When Paul says the word wives, he's acknowledging they live in a culture where wives have little to no power or recourse. There's nothing in their name if the husband says, I'm no longer interested you in you, get out. All he has to do is repay the dowry to her parents and he's, he can do whatever he wants. And she has nothing. They don't have anything. And so you can imagine how easily a situation like that could be abused. And what can a woman do in a situation like that? Paul says, in this setting, how tempting would it be for the wife to just subvert and undermine This husband, how tempting would that be? Because that's virtually all that she has access to. But what Paul is saying in this passage is the way to honor the name of Jesus or transform your husband isn't through subverting him. He's not saying there's no recourse, there's no potential. In fact, when a woman would enter a church community, and by the way, women were very attracted to the church community because they were given opportunities and status and positions in the church community. But at home, they didn't have that. And Paul's saying, here's how you transform. Here's how you honor the name of God. But it's not through this subverting that guy. This is so hard because, I I mean, of course, it raises a million questions. But, I I mean, we have all seen marriages get real ugly. And what happens is it's almost always the same pattern. It's some sort of unresolved conflict that just lingers and lingers. And then it pops up in almost every conversation. Like you thought it went away, but it's like a little groundhog and it pops up when you least expect it over here. And, and it's guys and girls both do this. It's just an, on, it's an ongoing conflict, an ongoing argument. And it turns into this never-ending thing. But it gets bad when it starts spilling over into social interactions. And you've seen this too. You've heard husbands insult their wives and wives insult their husbands in in public social settings. And I don't know what we think we're accomplishing, but it, it could be eye rolling, it could be body language. But I mean, spouses, whatever you think you're accomplishing when you do those things or when you demean your spouse in public, you're not accomplishing that. You're not scoring points for your team. You're not making yourself look better. You're not getting people on your side and like, oh yeah, he is a real idiot or yeah, she is awful. You're not not doing that. You're making it awkward for everyone and then the worst thing is is the kids start to become pawns in this long standing argument and then the final stage is couples start to actively work against each other and again, it's guys and girls. Oh, it's going to be that way, all right and they start subverting and undermining one another. Listen, no one takes our lives from us we lay it down willingly. That is how transformation happens, just like it did with Jesus. So what do we say to these things? The way to transform a difficult situation is not through subverting or undermining our spouse, whether you're a man or a woman. It's just the way, not the way to do it. And in that culture, in the honor-shame culture to whom Paul is writing, he says, wives, submit and I know it raises a million other questions it raises a million questions for me let's talk about them but the way to transform the situation isn't through undermining no one takes our lives we lay it down willingly Paul goes on to talk about children and parents and we're not going to spend any time about that because I think most parents are like yeah I think children should obey and most kids are like yeah I guess so but he does say fathers do not embitter your children and wow could we talk about that for a month or two the, the power, the influence that fathers have in their lives, for good or for ill. Fathers do not embitter your children. That is a weighty thing to consider. But let's go on to this last part slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. Verse 22, Colossians 3 22 Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to create their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And he goes, reemphasizing what he said in verse 17, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord, not human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And I believe he's talking about masters. There is no favoritism. And then he addresses masters. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Let's, uh, let's wrap up. We've taken enough of your time, but I just think it's important to, to deal with this concept as we wrap up uh, this morning. We see the word slave, we think of the North American transatlantic slave, um, the whole thing, and it's awful, terrible, and it's a national shame, right? You talk about honor and shame. Paul's talking about something a little different. This is not endorsing, it's just explaining. About 30% of the Roman population were what they would consider slaves. It was a big deal. And there were paths to freedom, and it's a whole different thing. Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 7, he's like, hey, don't become slaves because you could voluntarily become a slave as a path to citizenship uh, or as a path to money. And he says, don't do it. That's not a good thing to do. If you're willing to take just a super quick little detour, I want you to see something. Uh, In Colossians 4, chapter 4, verse 9. This is not going to seem like much right at the beginning, but uh, this is so important. It says, he is coming, Epaphras is coming with a guy named Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you? They will tell you everything that is happening here. Remember, we're seeing a letter that is being sent to the church in Colossae, and one of the guys bringing the letter to the church in Colosse is a guy named Onesimus. We know that Onesimus had a second letter that he was delivering to a person in the church in Colossae. He had another letter. Now, this Onesimus eventually became the bishop of Ephesus. He became the leader of the church in Ephesus. This is really important. This guy, Onesimus, became the guy in Ephesus and he's carrying this letter, and we happen to have the letter that he was bringing to the one guy, a guy named Philemon, in the church in Colossae. We have a copy of it, and it's in the Bible. I don't want you to see an excerpt. This is amazing. Philemon 8. There's no chapters. It's just one chapter. Philemon 8. Therefore, although in Christ, Paul's saying, I could be bold, and I could order you what you ought to do. I could do that. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. You have to lay your life down. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while in chains. He says in verse 11, formerly he was useless. And we discover that Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had run away from Philemon, and he had somehow found Paul, been converted, and Paul said, Onesimus, guess what? You gotta go back to Philemon. But I'm gonna send a letter with you. And he says he was useless. It's kind of a play in words because the word Onesimus means useful. He was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back. Who is my own heart? This is a slave. He is one of you. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. We lay our own lives down. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Listen to this, verse 16. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. That's powerful. That's a huge deal that Paul was saying, hey, there's a revolution happening, but it's not going to happen by force. I'm not going to hold a knife to your throat, Philemon, and make you free this slave. I want a transformed heart to free this man so that he can become everything God has him to become. And then, of course, Onesimus goes on to be the leader in the church in Ephesus. What a big deal. Ball is in your court, Philemon. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? If you read the Bible as justifying slavery, and I've heard people explain that, you're reading it wrong. If you read the Bible as justifying misogyny, you're reading it wrong. But here's the deal. You have stuff in your life that is hard, stuff that you wish were different. People in your life behave in ways that you don't want them to, and you would love to force them to change. You would love to do something that would make them uh, uncomfortable or make it awkward or they would be different. And, and, and Or maybe you're just angry, and lots of people choose that option, even just Christians, just live in anger because people are not the way they want them to be. We're looking for, what can I do to make this other person do what I want them to do? How can I force them? How can I make them conform? Or we can choose within those circumstances to bring honor and glory to the name of Christ by living like Jesus even in difficult circumstances to bring glory to the name of Christ. So what is challenging you? It could be your marriage, it could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be your work. What is challenging you and how can you bring glory and honor and maybe transform that situation? Because you're bringing glory to the name of Christ. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord.